this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Patrons of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast get free audiobooks and bonus episodes. Hi, this is Linus Wilson. On this episode of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast, we're going to hear from John Glennie. This is the second part of his interview with me way back, I think, in episode 26. And in this uh, second half of the interview, which is a really extended interview of long talk I had with Captain John Glennie, he's famous for his books and his loss of the trimaran, the Rose Noel, which he took out with an inexperienced crew, three other crew members we didn't know. He departed in a storm and the boat was flipped over. And it drifted for 119 days. And by some miracle, the currents pushed it back to New Zealand. But when they got back to New Zealand and they wrecked on New Zealand after nearly four months, nobody believed his story until they scientifically proved it. And John, in this interview, talks about how he dealt with post-traumatic stress syndrome, how he dealt with the deprivations of being adrift in such a small location in such a cold climate. It's an amazing story of survival. I'm glad I can bring you the second half in this super extended long episode. Here's a word from our sponsor, Mantis Marine. Mantis Anchors founder, Greg Cutson tells why they created a modular design that can be easily stowed away for their revolutionary anchor. Well, you literally have some time, just a few seconds, to deploy something. And that something you deploy better work. And sometimes it better work at short scope. And when we want to make an anchor modular, it's not just because we want you to have a spare for a hurricane, you know, be able to put away a monster. But we want you to be able to have a spare for an emergency, which, meaning a spare anchor needs to have the same setting performance as your primary. That was kind of the, the thought. So we wanted to have, we didn't, we didn't want to change the design, we wanted to have the main anchor as something that is modular. So you can use it for a variety of applications. You can get Mantis anchors and their other innovative sailing gear at mantismarine.com or other fine retailers. Okay, here's John Glennie, the skipper of the Rose Noel, in part two of our discussion from way back in episode 26. Well, when, when we got back, um, uh, New Zealand ceased by commission the... Um, uh, the meteorological office to plot a course on where we would have where we would have gone from the wind direction. So they hired the, they got this guy who knew all about it. He'd watched logs drifting up the uh, the coast and that sort of stuff. So he plotted a course, and after we we're a couple of months out, we were well on the way to Chile, and he thought to himself these guys are having me on. And then all of a sudden he realized that he was using last year's weather chart. So then he started going all over again. And then we, um, he found out that we'd gone out towards Chile and then we turned around and, and gone north, did a circle, and then we did another circle, and then a figure eight, and then turned around and then came back to New Zealand. But um, we went through, uh, I went through a, a marine inquiry because no one believed us because they thought we were drug running. And um, the UK 
wouldn't publish my book because they thought it was a hoax. hoax. But the thing that cleared us was that um, I told them where we tipped upside down and we picked up these wallocks on the boat upside down in that area. And that had, that had grown to such a, such a size when they, uh, when they dove on the wreck and they found out that uh, we'd been harvesting them. But what was interesting is that those mollusks don't grow in that area. They only grow in one area, and that was the area where we capsized. Well, that's, so that, 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 that really shows the extent to which there was an inquiry, <laughs> that they were looking at the breeds of mollusks and how fast they would grow. So that's yeah. amazing. Uh, yeah. After that, did, did, did you suffer from PTSD? Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, uh, I know Jim, yeah, he couldn't stand to be around anybody. Actually, my sister rang up uh, a doctor in, in New Zealand who was pretty well up on PTSD, and she said to him, is there anything we can do? And he said, no, on the contrary. You know, family and friends uh, are not uh, are not going to be able to help because they um, people going through this sort of thing um, can't stand don't want to be around anybody who puts pressure on them. So you can't be around ex um, wives or girlfriends or family anything like that. And um, Jim had that pretty bad. Um, I made it all the way through to to Auckland up, they picked us up in a helicopter and I stayed, um, a friend of mine, I stayed at his place the night and I was still okay. And then I got picked up by a lady unknown years ago and taken around to her family. And I slept in the daughter's bedroom and I got up during the night and wrote a letter to her thanking her very much because I didn't think I was gonna make it through the night. But what was interesting which I only just found out last year, was that I was sent round to another lady's place for quiet time, and I spent 10 days around at her place, and I don't remember any of it. And it wasn't until last year when she got, when she messaged me on, on Facebook and she said, do you remember me? I looked after you for 10 days when you, when you first came ashore. I have never forgotten you. And she mentioned it, a few things that um, I'd said to her, I, I'd said to her, uh, I want to come back to you when I was leaving. And I remember saying that. And she also said that I would go to her when she was in the galley and in her house. And um, she would cry on me. And then I would start to cry and then I'd pull away. And she used to bathe me because I used to sweat so much. But I don't remember any of it. She said that she noticed the gap in my book. I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Long Walk, about the guy who uh, was taken to um, Siberia and put into a, a camp. No, I remember that you mentioning that in the article, though. Uh, yeah. It was about someone else yeah, who and, suffered from and, a very and, traumatic and experience. The, the only way they could get out of it was to escape. So they escaped in a snowstorm. And they walked down, they walked um, all the way down across the Gobi Desert. They, they actually made a, a movie on it called The Way Out. 
and then they walked up over the Himalayas just with the clothes that they were made and wearing. And they came down in, into India and they got picked up by a, a British army unit. And they said, we're going to have to put you in a hospital. And he said to them, he said, you're joking. You know where we've been? We've been just walking up over the top of the Himalayas. And they said, well, we're still going to have to put you in the hospital. The moment they put him into the hospital, he yelled and screamed for two weeks and he doesn't remember any of it. And that's PTSD, that's the PTSD I had. As soon as you're in a, a safe place, the mind lets go so that the body can heal. And unless you're in that safe place, you can just, the body can do almost incredible things. But it's not until it gets in that safe place that the, the mind will go so the body can heal. And that's what happened to me with um, Alison, who looked after me. Well, uh, you know, I read uh, once that, uh, you know, writing a book or talking about your trauma is actually helpful for PTSD. Did you did you find that to be the case? How long after going through the ordeal on the Rose Noel uh, did you write the book? Yeah, um, well, I had PTSD for about three months. Well, the one I've just you know told you about, and I didn't even I didn't even know that it had happened. You know, for that ten days, um, and I. I thought I remembered everything so vividly, and it wasn't until I went round to Allison's place that I was in a safe place, and the body let, the mind let go. But the rest of the time, anything I saw, I wanted to eat, and that lasted for three months. Um, and it was, it's, it's very, very interesting what you, you know. And also, the guy in New Zealand said that uh, very little is known about PTSD. When did you write the book after the the? Uh, uh, you got it was after about a after about a month, I guess, or maybe less. Penguin Books in New Zealand wanted me to to write a book, and of course, you know, uh, I couldn't hold a thought any more than two minutes. Whenever I went out anywhere, I had to take a pencil and paper because if I had a thought, I'd have to write it down because you know that that thought would go. And when I went, I, I got taken around to Jane's place, the lady who wrote my book. And um, I could tell her um, how we made the water catchment system up and all that sort of stuff. But the actual, the time we went through out at sea, I just shut up. And she would, it was like she had to use a, um, a shoehorn to try and get information out of me. In fact, in the end, what she would do, she would write three scenarios about how, how I felt, about my emotions and all that sort of stuff. And she says, choose one. Because <laughs> oh. I, I couldn't go there. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so it was very hard for you to talk about it. You really didn't fully talk yeah. about it, even while you yeah. were writing the book, because yeah. you had, a, you had a, someone to help you with the writing, and you were, just couldn't talk about it. So, it, no. so you were still yeah. very much suffering when the book was yep. being written and maybe it wasn't enough of therapy for you. Yeah, yeah. In fact, you know, I, I, um, I have Jim's book. Jim wrote a book called Cat's Eyes and I still can't read that. Um, Jane, who wrote my book, um, because she was a journalist, she, she wrote to my sister and said that uh, about some of the things that she'd noticed. 
because she couldn't comment on anything that she hadn't experienced herself. But we mm -hmm. went down to Picton to interview the guys down there, and they said, okay, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll come down, because she wanted to make sure that what she said, you know, was, was right. Well, when we got down there, Rick had got to them and wouldn't let them tell everybody that they wouldn't, um, they wouldn't talk to us. Anyway, we went round to his place, and he was there with his wife, and um, Jim wasn't there, and neither was Phil. But Jim's sister came came while we were there, came round to, to see her. And the first she first thing she said to me was, "Thank you very much for bringing Jim back." And of course, Jane um, took all the notes about that. But in Jim's book, it was, aren't you going to thank me for bringing Jim back? Now, the whole book is pretty much like that. In fact, I had a girlfriend who tried to, who knew me very well. She tried to read his book, and um, she got about 40 pages into it and couldn't, couldn't um, read it anymore. But well, I think that, it was a very difficult experience for you all. Yeah, yeah, especially, especially for them. And they, they blamed me the whole time for the boat tipping upside down. And they clung, up, clung on to that like a mantra. Did, did you ever, did you ever apologize to the crew members for, you know, the trip going badly? No, they didn't even bother to thank me for bringing them back. But you never said, well, I'm sorry that we went through the storm and it went badly, or that you never said that to them? Why would I want to do that? Okay. One of the things I, I looked at the documentary, and the in the documentary that I guess New Zealand TV put out, I don't know the particular station that you recommended. They they said that after that you had kind of given up on the sea. You given up on sailing, and you started RVing. When did you start doing that? Uh, that would be about 91. Okay. Yeah, I I had an RV over here. Um, In the yeah, United have, States. When did you move I, to the I United States? I have been around the sea for 25 years. Uh -huh. And a couple, a couple of years ago, I was contacted by a lady who wanted to wanted a boat to live on. And I said, yeah, I'll give you a hand. So while I was searching for boats for her, and she was, she was an, um, an ex-jet pilot. Uh-huh. And um, we had a lot of fun. Anyway, when I was searching for a boat for her, I thought, wow, look at all these, you know, it brought back all those memories. So I bought myself a Cal 2029. 20, and um, I'm just enjoying being back out on the water again. I don't like getting, I don't like getting cold or wet. In fact, I, I don't even like sailing. I just, you know, I just like being on the water. If, it's, if there's no wind... <laughs> It sinks me down to the ground. And okay. if I get into trouble, I can sail back. In the two years I've had the boat, I've been sailing twice. Okay, so, so I saw that, those pictures of your, you got the Cal 29 now. Yeah. Uh, that That's cool. So, you you know, up until two years ago, you had not really done any sailing since the Rose Noel, is that right? Yeah. I, I did skip for a charter boat up in the San Juans a few years ago. Okay. But apart from that, no, I haven't. Uh, I haven't been around the water at all. If it's going to blow a lot, you, do you stay in port or you you go out no matter what? 
No, <laughs> I, I only go out if it's good weather. And the last two years, we haven't had any wind. So even if, even if we put the sails up, we wouldn't have gone anywhere. So it's been, but this year, we've had a lot, a lot of wind. And, um, but up here, you, um, you always sail with the tide because the tides are racing, racing in and out. You know, you're up to right, seventeen yeah. foot of seventeen foot of tide. It makes it interesting because when you normally when I anchor, I either sail the anchor in or something, and when the boat lurches and it, you know, digs its bow down or something, you know the anchor's held. But up here, you know, it changes. That tide changes every six hours and then the anchor has to reset. And when that anchor's resetting, it's, it's liable to chain caught around that anchor. So, and then you have to allow for the big rise and falls of tide and, and for your scope and all that sort of stuff. So it's a little different, but I still like being on the water. What were the tides like on the South Island of New Zealand? Tides about three foot. Okay. My favorite place is in Moria and Tahiti, where the rise and fall of tide there is six inches, and the high tide is at 12 o'clock every day. Cool. And it's it's very interesting there because the um, the Tahitians, you know, they have their canoes, and instead of hauling them out up on the beach, they put them onto uh, sticks with a little wire on top of them. They just lift lift them out of the water about six inches and drop them onto these sticks so that the boat's just above the water. So um, that's pretty neat, huh? The only, the only thing about that is that you've got to sail all the way down the Samoa for a three-foot tide there so you can put, you know, put the boat on the beach so you can scrub it down. But the rest of, you know, six-inch rise before the tide, it's, it's just ideal. It makes it, it makes it easier to anchor, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, with the time, man, we all used to run it up on the beach anyway. Okay, and tie I see. And to a coconut tree because, you know, Coconut trees, even on a cyclone, usually don't move. Yeah, I guess that that would be better as long as your boat's not like put out on a. Is you yeah. know the 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 anchorages are so deep in in uh, French Polynesia uh, well, and if, much if of the Pacific. Not that deep. What is very hard is, is the, the the sandy the, the very hard sandy bottom in the lagoon. And the anchor is going to have a, a big trouble trying to hold. Mm -hmm. So what we used to do, we used to dive down with the anchor, and then and um, wriggle it and try and get it in the in the sand. But even then, I wouldn't rely on it. So what we used to do in those days, I don't think you could do it now. Was we had a little 16-pound pick, and we dive down, and then we put that in a coral nigger head and then wrap that wrap the chain around the coral and then you knew you weren't going to go anywhere but generally what we like to do was come into a small lagoon within the lagoon inside a, a dead coral reef and we would get in there at, at high tide and then put a, an anchor in the coral and then a, another line going ashore to a coconut tree and um and some of the times, even then, we would sit on the bottom of both tides. And these are the sort of places where only the um, the canoes would, would go into. No one, no one had ever been there, there before. But, you know, you can go away and leave the boat, and it's quite, quite safe. Because that's one of the problems.
problems of, of having a yacht is not going too far away. Of course, nowadays, where do you go? There's marinas, you know, and there were very few marinas in my day. And in a marina, you can tie what tie it up and go travelling or something. That's the only limitation. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's a, anchoring is great, but you typically don't want to leave your boat on anchor <laughs> for long uh, periods without yeah. checking on it. Yeah, and and nowadays, you know, you can put that anchor app on your on your cell phone and um, and tell you if you've. Uh, well, you know, I haven't found an anchor app that um, worked because every time I went off the boat, then it said I dragged because it was based on my cell phone. But maybe there are some that broadcast signals from your chart plotter and that that would work. But oh, yeah. a, a lot of these anchor apps, they don't they don't actually allow you to leave the boat. Okay. Yeah, well, well even on, on the boat, it's a good idea. Instead of having an anchor watch, it'll let you know. Um, yeah, they have the anchor drag alarms on the, the yeah. chart plotters. Yeah. And I've, I've been in places, and especially as having an anchor watch at night time, in these places there's no loom of the um, lights from, the, from towns or cities, so it's very, very dark. And it's difficult to see if you've dragged anchor, and if you have, because you start getting hypnotized by the, um, the land around you, and you wouldn't know if, it, if it's dragged or not. So what we used to do is we would throw over the 16-pound pick or something and put it on a line and then just drop that over the wing deck. And um, then we'd take that line, run it through the hatch, and then tie it to a pot and pans and put it on top of the fridge. So if the anchor dragged, it would just pull the pot and pan off the fridge and make one hell of a noise. So you'd know instantly if you're laying if your um, anchor, anchor dragged. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I just don't like anchor watches. Oh, well, yeah, that kind of is, is kind of drains your crew's yeah. patience, right? Yeah, but it's, it's, it's no good up here in the Puget Sounds because, you know, that, that tide races back the other way. You know. So, yeah, you really want to probably find a marina if you can. Yeah, or anchor on, on, on one of the um, mooring boys, but I don't like those things. So the only way you can do it is slow an anchor down and, and, and bless the bloody thing. Yeah, it like hell. makes it trickier. The, the last time I pulled the anchor up, the, the chain was, was around the anchor, and I don't know how it was holding, but I was lucky. Uh, what kind of anchor do you use right now? Um, it's an anchor, it's a Danforth which came on the boat, and it's not ideal for up here. I yeah, I would say Danforth have a really bad reputation of resetting. Yeah, especially if they pull out and then reset again. Yeah. Except if you're in um, uh, Sausalito, and it's very, very bad there. At Danforth, there's lots of anchors there that they'll never get back. And if you're ever anchoring in Sausalito and, and, um, California and uh, San Francisco, you need to put a trip line on it. Because what happens is it goes into the mud and it just keeps on going down and down and down and down. And you'll never, ever pull it back, pull it back up again. <laughs> you have to um, put a trip line on it. Oh, that's interesting. I don't, I've, not, I've never heard of that, an anchor sinking in the mud so much that you get yeah. caught. I've heard of, like, yeah. on rocks and things like that. Yeah. Uh, I haven't come across it anywhere else before, but possibly those real bad there. Yeah, I would say with our anchor, the worst problem it, we have with it, our current one, the the uh, 
we don't use the Danforth anymore. I had a bad bad experiences with the Danforth, but we use a Mantis anchor, and it, it's supposed to reset really well. It's also got a lot of surface area, but it, the the hard part is pulling it up. You got to really trip it because <laughs> a lot of times it's dug in pretty good. So it's, yeah, that's a good problem yeah, to have. I, use, I usually use the motor to be able to get my anchor up. Even without the motor, I'll, I'll pull it up, and then uh, as soon as you're right at the top, you just take a turn around the, around the cleat, and then use the weight of the boat to try and uh, uh, free it down there. Yeah, I otherwise, think the, the more modern anchors will set better than reset yeah. better than the Danforth. So maybe yeah. if you get a new one, you'll have a bit better experience. Yeah, when I was in um, Norfolk Island with my first boat, there's huge big rocks down there. You know rocks the size of a, bigger than the size of a car. And what happens is the anchor would go down between those rocks and you would never, ever get the anchor back again. So we used to use a 16-pound pick to put, that, put down there. And then if you can't get it up, what you do is you just stand back and then get the motor going and rev it up and go like hell and as soon as you're over the top, take a, take a turn and, and then just break, break the anchor. Because um, you know it's only a 16 pound, it's not going to take um, too much to be able to um, to break the anchor unless you have the chain there. But a 16 pound 16 pound pick is, is very good for for a number of things. Yeah, I mean when you were diving anchors in French Polynesia, was that were you using scuba gear or are you just free diving it? No, I, I I never used scuba gear, just free dive down. So it wasn't it wasn't that deep. It wasn't like a 50 foot anchorage or anything. No, okay. no, I, I can dive down to about forty feet, or I could in those days. Wow. But um, usually in the lagoon, you know, you're only diving down about twelve feet, which is no problem. You just duck dive, and you next night you're on the bottom. What's a duck dive? It's just like fold yourself up and then and okay. you sort of go down without even kicking for for a while, and then you kick. Coming from New Zealand, uh, you know, I think a lot of the New Zealanders compared to the, the rest of the world, they have a reputation for being great sailors in part because there's just it's such a stormy climate there in New Zealand. We we had a we had a guest on episode six, Bob McDavitt, who has a company called Met Bob, and he used to work for the Met Service there in New Zealand as a, a weather ambassador. And and he said that you know there's a there's really a, a a low or a storm maybe a gale maybe not to storm level but a gale about every five days four days between there and New Zealand. Yep. So you know I think the passage you were doing it was is is typically a stormy passage, regardless of the weather. You may have hit a worse storm than was typical. Yeah. But. New Zealand seems to make good sailors. Nearly all the um, the sailors on the America's Cup boats and the Round the World boats, a lot of them are all, all Kiwi sailors. Yeah, we and, and, told, and so we I think kind of maybe Zealand my weather. expectations of what it is good weather probably wouldn't be what maybe the typical New Zealander sailor yeah. would be of what that's, is good weather. That's, that's true, yeah. What, what was nice was that I was voted one of the 10 most influential cruising sailors of all time in New Zealand by New Zealand Shopping Magazine. And, and one of the, some of the, some of 
both Tim was um, uh, Dame Naomi James, who was the first woman to sail around the world, and the guy who was uh, uh, Frank Worsley, who was Shackleton's captain. So it's um, quite a quite an honour to be one of the ten most influential cruising sailors of all time. No, I, I think you definitely have your place in history. I, you know, I'd I'd say that the the question in terms of uh, the number of days you were at sea, I think we, I wonder if there is any other sailboat that was, you know, disabled at sea and drifted for as long as you did, or, or anybody on a sailboat that was even in a raft that had spent as much time at sea. Obviously, we just had the the fisherman from, uh, who was fishing in Mexico, I think he was El Salvador and by birth, but lived much of his life in Mexico at least. And he came back after 538 days uh, with a disabled yeah. engine. And yeah. there obviously was Poon Lim on the, right. the raft yeah. during World War II yeah. for, I guess, maybe it was 130 or something days. Right. Uh, but, you know, I don't think you'll find any people on a sailboat that, that had drifted as long as you guys. Maybe you'd have to go back before yachting. <laughs> into the the days where the sailboat was the the primary means of uh, yeah uh, well, transport. All those records, all those records are in a in an area of the world which is very warm, um, and I'm recognised as holding the the world record for the longest time of trip in a cold climate. Yeah, and I I, I still don't get it, uh, and maybe that was why the 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 New Zealand people were so amazed was how did you guys keep warm? How did you, how did you keep warm? It was because you were in such a close together, maybe that you kind of kept your warmth through each other. Well, yeah. After four days after capsize, we um, cut a hole in the bottom of the boat and got out and we took our clothes off to see what had happened. And we, we, we had salt, salt sauce and we noticed that, where we had the salt source was because we had um, cotton next to our skin. And where, where we had um, wool next to our skin or some of that new fabric that they use, we didn't have salt source. So we put wool next to our skin and we never had any problem. In fact, I had a, a wool jersey, uh, what do you call here, pullover or something, and I used those for pants so that I would have wall next to my skin and that was one of the problems when we came back that we didn't have salt sauce and we looked we looked in too good a shape and that's where a lot of the doubt came from and they and they thought we were drug running okay so you had a lot of wool clothing that maybe was water resistant which is water resistant and, and maybe kept you guys fairly warm is that yeah well i had um a wool singlet you know um it's uh the shearer's, shearer's vest, I think you call it a vest, mm-hmm. but they, and they're very long and they're black and the, um, the truckers use them too and that comes right down over your bum, but they're very good. But there is a new, there is a fabric that a lot of the um, mountaineers use and that it's some sort of a, a fabric they use and it does pretty much the same thing. I know, I think Rick and Jim had those sort of things, so they didn't have a problem. So we we didn't have any problem with um, the salt sauce, which is 
So how did you, how did you avoid salt sores again? How was it? You dried yourself out? Is that it? Or no, we we dried ourselves out from the inside when you got wet. And the good thing about being in the salt water is you'll never get a cold from salt water. But it was cold. It was it was midwinter, very very cold. Okay. You know it's it's just like the pregnant school girl, isn't it? You grin and bear it. <laughs> okay. When I started sailing, which was not very long ago, you know, I sailed with my wife, and you know, she was pregnant at the time, and then we had a, a young baby on board, and now she's five. You know, I always felt like with my cruising trips that I was, and I wrote about this in my book, that if I if I took her out in bad weather, that I would lose basically my boat privileges, right? I would lose my uh, ability to convince her to continue yeah, to come on the boat. Yeah, you'd lose your wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and so I, I think I was maybe more careful about uh, going out in good weather or good weather in the sense that it's not going to have too high a winds and too big a waves than maybe I would have been had I just been single. Yeah. No, you're, 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 you're treating your wife the wrong way. Right. Yeah. Up and down the coast, you need to, to leave and go to another place, like you know, make a trip from from where I am across to Hawaii. Uh-huh. Um, and then they have to get out and help you because it's up to them. Uh, the safety of the boat is is in their hands too. Oh so, well, uh, we just yeah, did it. We they, just they did a very a, long option. Do you mind if I interrupt? An option to be able to okay. get themselves out of it. Uh, I want to say, I think you're assuming things about my wife that are not true, that my wife actually did all the sailing courses with me. She's a very good sailor. She is a mother, uh, but we just did an offshore trip uh, just a few weeks ago from Panama to Ecuador, and she did keep her watch and did a very good job of it, and she's she's very competent with the boat. So I wouldn't say that, but... I, even what, even what with my yeah. even with my wife, I'm very careful. You know, when I'm quote the captain, even though I'm not a professional skipper, uh, I'm, I'm very careful about the weather, about picking the weather because I think that my crew is going to suffer before the boat does. For instance, on our offshore passage to Ecuador, yeah. my wife got seasick but was not throwing up, but my daughter did get seasick. And, you know, that was a that was an issue because, you know, if that goes on for too long, she's going to get dehydrated and that becomes a medical issue beyond her comfort, yeah. right? I, I've been through that. Yeah, I, I generally get sick for the first three days. When I went through the, the depression, a cyclone actually turned into a tropical depression when I went through it. And I was sick every quarter of an hour for 24 hours a day. And it comes up, up every colour of the rainbow until it comes up red. But every quarter of an hour, I was finally seasick. But so I'm, I'm, I'm sick, you know, for three days. I can stand on a wharf watching a boat go up and down and be sick. But it's interesting, the people who don't get sick generally don't go sailing. Oh, yeah. yeah I, um, one of the problems with going up and down the coast, and, and uh, I've heard this so many times that, the wife will say, oh, buggy, you know, you can sail the boat yourself. So the 
because she knows that you know the, the guy can sell the boat himself into the next port, and of course that's where they go, and and that's and that's the end of the trip of any of their trips. But if they sail offshore and go to a, another island, which is you know a couple of weeks away, they can't they can't do that. And if they go through a storm and help with it, then the couple becomes closer and closer together, and it's only it's only um does good. When we left um, Sydney, we were going through this, um, this storm. I had three girls with us, and they'd never been on any boat before except the Manly Ferry. And my brother and I were terribly seasick, and and they thought it was very funny. But I would take one of them out on the helm, and I and I would show her how the the wheel works, and which way to turn it when the compass went this way and went that way. And I said, you've got that, have you? And they'd say, yep. And I said, good. And then I'd go down down below and go to sleep. And I would know that I would have to be out on deck six times in the first hour to let go of that, that backed everything around. They'd turn the wheel the wrong way, backed <laughs> all the sails, and I'd have to get it all going, put it back on the other tack, and get it going again. And I'd do that for six. I knew that I was going to have to do that for six hours. But, you know, after a while, they just make the best sailors of anybody. Women can sit there and they can watch that bloody little compass going round and round in circles. A guy can't do it. They would go nuts. But a woman can. They make really good sailors. They make the best, best um, helmsman of the lot. Well, you, I do you know. believe my wife is a better helmsman than I am. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they are. Yeah. But, um, anyway... Yeah, uh, so I guess the the thing is, I I think even and even with kind of the volunteer crew that I've had aboard, that to a certain extent my decision making about the weather is you know has a big factor on how long you know they're going to stay. So for instance, I had a crew member that was on for seven weeks, right? As a volunteer crew member, and. It, I think if if I sailed him through several storms, he might not have stayed on for. All, I mean, we did probably four passages, four multi-day passages on the trip, right? He might jump ship after the first passage. I was just wondering, is that is that how you feel now that you you need to select your weather a little better than um, back in '89? When I'm when I'm sailing now. Yeah. I only go out if the sun the sun's out. Okay. All right. So you've you, you've kind of gone through maybe a different. Now you've kind of changed your opinion about you know what's good weather and what's bad weather in terms of yeah. going out. I, I I was I was just invited to go for a trip from here down to Portland on a boat delivery. And I said no, thank you. I said I get sick, but I. The other thing I should have told them was I, I said, look, the only reason I'll go out sailing is to be able to crack onto a girl or a woman or something like that. Otherwise, you know, I don't think, I don't like getting cold and I don't like getting wet. And I've done enough sailing. I really don't have to do any more that sort of stuff. I just like being on my boat and having fun. And that's all I'm into, you know. Okay. You didn't talk very much about your RVing. How long did you uh, do RV trips? Um, I had a 16-foot RV. It's a little, a little Toyota, mm-hmm. and I lived that, on that for many years. The first one we had was a 21 foot RV, and we went up through Canada and that sort of stuff. 
and um, now I have a um, uh, I have a five acre farm here, and I'm pretty much into being self sufficient. I'm being a survivor. It has its um, drawbacks. I'm very much a survivor, so the place is very sovereign, self sufficient. I can live here quite well without anything else. Okay. So no matter what happened, I would, I would, I would be okay. So, uh, so I, I like being able to get away and going sailing. You, you, you would like to get away and go sailing, or you, you, you don't like that? No, whenever the sun's out, I'm off. Oh, I see. Okay. All right. Well, that yeah. sounds like a good plan. That's awesome. Yeah. Except, you know, it's, it's very difficult trying to find someone to go sailing with because everybody, all the women I know, they're all working, you know? That's true. <laughs> trying to find someone who's not working, you know? That's true. It's hard. Yeah. Why did and you move to the U.S.? All, all the women my own age, they, they, they don't only look old, but they dress old, and they and they look as though they're about ready to book themselves into a into an old people's home. And it, it gets more and more difficult. Yeah. Anyway, oh. I'm getting closer. You moved to the U.S. Why did you move to the U.S.? Versus, versus <laughs> I, I came here to go to a school. Okay. So you went to a university or something? Or? Oh, no. No, I went to a a, um, a school of um, the School of Enlightenment. Okay. <laughs> okay. I think uh, one of the things that came through in kind of the movie or the documentary uh, was that you had kind of uh, a, a certain belief system, and I maybe you could talk more about your your belief system or your religious uh, beliefs or your uh, what what helped get you through the ordeal. Really. Uh, well, it it was very interesting. In fact, what I it took me seven years to try to find out what actually had happened. Before before I left, I had a couple of tapes, Lord of the Wind. I was listening to this, and in it he said that um, there was two things he said which really struck home. One was, the only impossible thing in this world is a closed mind. And the other thing he said was, don't want for the miracles, be the genie. So when the boat tipped upside down, I knew exactly what I had to do. I had to create a miracle. So you can understand after everything I went through and then I, I, all of a sudden I found out that New Zealand was there even before I even saw it and I knew I'd created my miracle. I had a, uh, an EPIRD and that ran out after a couple of weeks and it was soon after that that something changed in me where I, I knew I was going to get out of it. And when you know something like that, it's almost as though you don't know it. Did you ever watch a, a film called The Three Faces of Eve? No. It was, about, it was about a lady who had multiple personality disorder. And when she became another personality, she couldn't remember who she was five minutes before. And she might even be, you know, a diabetic or something instantly. And another person hadn't taken over her body, what had happened is she'd gone to a place in her brain where she had, where she, she had become that person. And that's what had happened to me. Something had happened 
where I knew I was going to get out of it. And when you know like that, it's, like I said, it's almost as though you don't know. It's just like you wouldn't go around telling people you could drive a car because you know you can. Well, in my case, it was as though I'd always known that. It's like Eve when she became another personality. To her, she had always been that person. person. She didn't have to go around, she didn't have to say, tell anybody about that. As far as she, she was concerned, she'd always known. And with me, it was like, I'd always known too. So it wasn't a big deal because nothing, to me, nothing had changed. And the reason I found this out was because in that whole four months down there, I never had one doubt. I didn't have one doubt that I would ever make it out. Yet I was in an area of the world where there was absolutely no hope. If you can imagine, if you jumped in a, in a, a spaceship and you took off to the moon and you overshot it, there's no hope. There's no one out there. There's no hope of ever getting back. Because I'd been down in this area of the world before, I knew there was absolutely no hope. I knew we were on a 5,000-mile trip down through the growing 40s, the, the furious 50s and the screaming 60s in the middle of winter, and there's... You know, no one has ever come back from that area well, ever. So I knew just how bad it was. And I knew there was actually no hope. But I knew I was going to get out of it anyway. And it wasn't something I knew consciously, but it was something that it was in, that had happened inside of me, in my brain or somewhere, uh, because I never had one doubt. And then one day we were fishing out on deck and Phil was using the fishing rod and after about an hour or so, he just put the fishing rod down and walked away from it. Well, the, the fish took the bait and ran off with it and the rod. Well, the other two guys really jumped on it really hard and yelled and screamed and I saw them. And I, I just sat there and I thought, well, this is going to make it more interesting, isn't it? Now, where did that thought come from? That wasn't a conscious thought. And, and that, if, if I tried not, uh, not to have one doubt, it would be impossible, but I never had one doubt in that whole time that I would ever get out of it. Well, I, so, I think that's really interesting. I think that maybe contributed to your positive outlook that you did not doubt you would make it through. You know, I think yeah, a lot it of... wasn't a positive outlook. It was an attitude. Right, yeah. And that, the, the attitude was, was something that really pissed my crew off. And I didn't really know that, you know. I was just being me. But it was my attitude that I, you know, I, to me, I appeared as though I was having a good time and they said that I was one with the sea. And that was, that was their words. Well, maybe, but, you know, the sea was my home. But it was my attitude that deep down I knew I was going to get out of it. That attitude really, really pissed them off. And, and if you're trying to get into their mind, I can quite pop that. And um, I didn't realise either because I'm, um, 50 days, we had a big celebration. So we had this big celebration dinner. We um, we cooked up some dinner. <laughs> All of a sudden, my mind's gone somewhere else. Oh, well, I, they, I can't remember what I ate today, so... I cooked up custard in a tin. And the way we cooked it is that I had a, uh, a kerosene stove, uh, a kerosene uh, light. And the wick had gone, so we used the wick from one of the life vests. So it was a long, long, long trip um, thing to try and get this 
tin of custard mixed in and, and heated up in this can. But it was it was a storm and it was blowing. We had nothing else to do. And then we had a few other things, and that was our big celebration for day 150. And at the end of it, I said, well, how about we have da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da for our for our 100-day celebration. Well, that didn't go over too well at all because they, they not only did they think they were going to die, but if they thought anything, they thought they were going to get rescued the next day. But they, you know, I, the sea was my home, and it, and it wasn't theirs. So they didn't know where they were. They were like fish out of water. So they, although one day we were fishing out on deck, and at the end of the day, Rick said he'd had such a good time he'd forgotten where he was. But we, when the sun was shining, we were out on deck fishing and that sort of stuff. And we had a good time. What parts of the South Pacific did you visit before you got the Rose Noel with your brother? From New Zealand, we went to Rapa, which is about 600 miles south of Tahiti. Then um, we went up to into the Austral Islands, to um, uh, Tuvaluai, and then from then we got, we had radiation sickness from the French bomb uh, from Mora. The whole island got radiation sickness up to Tahiti. We went from... Uh, where was that, where you got, uh, uh, what was the name of the island where you got radiation sickness? Tuvaluai. What happened was they, they lit the bomb off on Mororoa and the wind changed around and it came across and then it rained on Tuvaluai. And it... It never rained on Tuboy at that time of year, but it rained, and everybody was—it was a Sunday, and everybody was um, going to church, and the little kids were vomiting, and we were going to leave that day, but we had splitting headaches and we couldn't leave. And then we found out two days later that they let the bomb off on Moira, and we went through Tahiti and Puhini, Rapia and Bora Bora, and then um, went to Sawara. We dropped a. a a guy who wanted to live life as a hermit off on, on Sawari, which is an uninhabited atoll, mm-hmm. and down to Samoa, American Samoa, Western Samoa, and I uh, got a, um, a Tongan girl, then this crew, and then we went down to Fiji, and then Vanuatu, and then we spent almost a year in New Mia, and then, then across to Brisbane, from there went down to Lord Howe, and across to Sydney, back to Lord Howe, Norfolk Island, back to New Zealand. So those were the islands we did in the South Pacific. And also the Marquises and the Tuamotus. On the second trip we went up and went through the Tuamotus and the Marquises up to Hawaii and then Vancouver. It was interesting, when we came into, um, into Nia Bay, we had dense fog for the last two days and we couldn't see any more than about 100 yards ahead of us. And we counted 11 ships that went by just by hearing them. And there was one fishing boat came by that he probably picked us up on his radar and came by to see what we were. And then we, when we came into Nia Bay, it came in at night time just by using the, the fog horns and the bells and, and the um, radio direction finder. And then just as we came into, that, into Nia Bay, all of a sudden the fog lifted at 1 o'clock in the morning and there was Nia Bay. So we called into the uh, Coast Guard. And they said, when are you leaving? And we said, oh, we're leaving in the morning. Three boats out there lost out there already. And I said, oh, we just came up with that. <laughs> and then we went up to Victoria, up to um, Vancouver, and then we took a plane down to 
Hawaii to, to deliver a boat back. And then we went, went down to, spent over a year in Rio de Janeiro. And those, in those days, you know, well, it's the largest small boat marina in the world, eight and a half thousand yachts. And um, we had a great time there. And it's just like being in another country. Once you move out of the marina, back into um, Los Angeles proper, you know, in another world again. But in Marina del Rey in those days, there was, there was a lot of um, riverboards and people sailing around. And if you wanted to know anything, that was the place to learn it. So that was 1970. Awesome. And is your brother still a sailor? No, he um, he built a boat the same as mine, and he sailed up to um, Yumea, Vanuatu, and then back. And then his marriage broke up, and he had to sell his boat. And then he didn't he, buy another one? No, no. No, he bought a house in Australia. And he's only just moved back to New Zealand now. Okay. You know, I think uh, one of the things that I think the movie was kind of critical about you and and maybe the documentary uh, with the Rose Noel was that, you know, you said it would never flip over, which I think a lot of skippers would say that it's it's very unlikely for a boat to flip over. And so you have an inexperienced crew, you're going to say that. And then there were, uh, I guess, maybe there was kind of events where you said it would never happen and then it then it happened do you is it yeah, um, what 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 sort of a skipper would i have been if i'd said look this boat can turn upside down so if i was you i'd pray like hell right i i, I totally agree and and usually not even in storm conditions you would most skippers will uh, be forced into saying that to inexperienced crew <laughs> in 10 yeah. knot winds. <laughs> the, the storm we were in wasn't that big a storm. You know, I've been, I've been through a lot worse. It's just that we got hit by a, um, a vertical wall of water. Okay, so... An, unusual, uh, unusual... Okay, so unusual on the... Way, but, on the... The radio, on the, the, the movie, they say it was five meter waves. Right? And fifty knot winds, something like that. Yeah. Do you think that was you think that was accurate or not? Was that what you were yeah, getting from the yeah, weather it was, reports it was, or? It was probably about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but when you get hit by a you know um, one of these freak waves, it can be a three or four times the size of your normal um, waves in the area. One of the frustrations of the 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 guys on the boat was that maybe they. You said things that weren't going to happen, maybe with the water or maybe with the boat flipping over, uh, and they did. They did end up happening. You know, is it, did you? You just thought those things were just really unlikely to happen. Not necessarily it was impossible. That was it. Um, it was highly unlikely in my mind, mind that the boat would turn upside down because I'd been through a, a heck of a lot worse, and I knew the boat could handle itself. It's just that no boat would have survived that that wave that we got hit with, and that's you know it's it's a one in a bloody million. So I guess to the extent that you know the 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 movie represented the wave as just a really freak wave to what was out there, even though it didn't look that terribly realistic to a sailor of what a storm would look like. That it was. It wasn't that it was kind of a, a rogue wave or a freak wave. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, one of the other things which sort of annoyed me when I watched that movie, because it was a while since I watched a movie, I watched it with some friends so they could hold my hand, <laughs> was that, you know, never, I never once mentioned God or anything like that. But you have to understand that that's, you know, it's the... Um, yeah, I guess that was kind of why I was asking about your belief system. You just you just had a strong belief you were going to get through it, despite yeah. all and you it, knew. It, it, it wasn't something that was conscious. I, I just knew it. So it, it's very difficult to be able to put that sort of thing into words. And, and it's not something you would tell anybody. I never bothered telling anybody. If we were gonna, I never told my crew that we were going to get out of it. Because to me, I always knew, you know, weird, isn't it? It's just like, I guarantee you, you don't go around telling people you can drive a car, do you? Uh, no, I, no, I don't. No, that was the same as me. I, I wasn't going to, I no point in me telling them that, that we were going to get out of it because it's the same reason you don't tell people you can drive a car. It's something happened in my brain where I always knew, so it's weird really weird. And it's very hard to try and, you know, the only way you can do it is to um, realize that, that, you know, multiple personalities is similar to that. But we all have that ability to be able to go anywhere in our brain that we and be anything we want. It, it is possible. It takes a heck of a lot of work to be able to do that. But in people with multiple personalities, it just happens. And with me, um, what happened to me, it just happened too. It wasn't something I tried to do. It wasn't, it wasn't something I tried to be positive or what. It, it was never I tried to have no doubt. It, it, it was, that's uh, what had happened. And the interesting part about that is I never even had to try. I, ne I never even had to try to try to do anything. I, somewhere deep inside me, I just knew. And when I, when I came back to, um, to land, got off the helicopter, and I got interviewed by a guy with a um, TV, and they said to me, did you ever have one doubt that you wouldn't make it? I said, no. And he said, how did you do it? I said, faith. Because that was the only word I had for it. But faith and hope are both, are both conjectures, and knowing is absolute, and that's what I had. I had you know, I, I think uh, one of the things that people talk about, even kind of just ocean passages that, you know, uh, or sitting at the helm a lot or that type of thing, uh, they, they have a lot of trouble or they their mind kind of wanders. How did the guys cope? I don't think you guys were probably talking the whole time. A lot of you guys were probably had were in your own thoughts. How was that, or were you guys always busy? No, we no, we certainly weren't busy. Probably in that whole four months, we might have slept two days, or maybe I might have slept two days. Um, the rest of the time was just lying down there. I was I was in my element because when I was cycling and I would come back from you know doing a 40-mile ride at night time and I would hit the wall and I was having trouble and I was tired and I was sore and I still had another 10 miles to go. I used to imagine myself already in bed and um, snuggle up in bed as I was cycling. And next moment, you know, 
I was I was home. So it was it was just a um, a place that I went to to get out of where I was. And so when I was sailing around on my first boat for years, it used to take me about a week for my mind to slow down. Uh, because there's always, you know, the new crew to talk to and then there's sort of magazines to read and all the, and you read all the adverts in the magazine until you slow right down. And then when you're on the on the helm by yourself, you finally slow down and you've got used to steering, so you're, you're taking all the information in with your deaf brain and your steering. And then I used to jump into my right brain and just have a good time. So I used to... In those sort of circumstances, I would think to myself, okay, what would happen if I broke the rudder? So on a two, two or three-week trip, I would build that rudder all in my mind, very, very vividly, all in my mind, and what I'd do if something happened. Then on another, another trip, I would imagine something else. So it was one of those things I looked forward to, but I would never do it out of choice. I had to be pushed into it. And there was another lady... Um, under Lilhart, who, who wrote a, a book called A House in the Sky. And she was picked up by Somali, not pirates, Somali um, pe- people who kidnapped her. And they put her into a small room. I think they lashed her and raped her and all that sort of thing. And, and the only way she could get out of it was to go to her, in her mind, she went, a, she went to a house in her mind. And the book, she called it A House in the Sky. And that's the name of her book. And she said that her house had become so real to her. And when you're in that, when you're in that state, which is the same state I was in, because it was dark and I was lying, lying there, all I had to do to be able to go to that state of deprivation, because you're depriving your senses of your smell and, and um, sight and sound, all you have to do is to close your eyes and you're in your own deprivation tank. So then you're overlaying a new dream onto that harsh environment. And that's what I was doing. And that's basically what you're doing. And it's basically what lady who wrote The House in the Sky was. She overlaid a new dream onto, her, onto that environment. She was there 460 days. Eventually they, they took her out. And she got thrown into a car. She thought she was going to be taken to New Hamlet. And she got up the road a few miles. Next moment, the car stopped. And the car door opened and hit her mother there. She said, you're out of it. So the whole thing is that when you're in that situation, um, and it's, it's like a deprivation tank. And it's going to take a while to get into it. But the idea is to never think how bad things are and to always see yourself out of it already. In fact, if you're into the Bible, which I'm not, there's a little bit in there, Mark 11:24, and what it says is, pray as if it has already happened. And you'll notice that the Olympic athletes do the same thing. When they go to bed at night, they visualize themselves with the gold medal around themselves already on the diet. In other words, they're praying as if, if it has already happened. If you pray, all you're going to do is create more of the same. But you have to do it. You have to visualize it, do it, as if it has already happened. And you keep doing that. And, and that's what, that's what the, the brain understands. The brain doesn't know the difference between um, imagination and reality. So 
sail to the South Pacific next summer and or the next North American summer and what were your favorite places? some good there mangoes was, on the trip. There was another island uh, which we never went to because we were warned not to go there. It's called Sabay, which is the, the bigger island in uh, American uh, Western Samoa. But they, you have to remember that the Samoans, if you say to them, oh, gee, I, I, I like your shirt, they'll take off and give it to you. But they also think the same thing to whatever you've got to. So when you go there, you don't wear a watch or anything like that. the one you were not able to go to, is it?
that was on those, those days. There's a lot of people going there now. Um, it's not... Uh, you were warned off because of, was that radiation or what? No, no. No, no, it's just that um, there's, no, there's no real safe harbour. And also that the people, they're just as liable to um, take a bit of your anchor line because they want it for themselves or something like that. It's not that they um, being nasty, it's just that, you know, they they just wanted that little piece. Okay. All right. But, but there's lots of lots of places you can go to. There's, there's still got to be lots of places around off the beaten track. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of cruising sailors you know, learn the lesson pretty soon about not getting the get-there-itis that maybe it's better to stay in port a few days than rather go out and whether you wouldn't be comfortable in. Looking back, do you think that you you had a little bit of the get there-itis with the Rose Noel and ultimately you would have got to Fiji I, quicker had you just waited a little? Yeah, yeah, I, I, sh- I should have done that on hindsight. I was trying to, to go up to, to connect with the sailing regatta because I've never ever done anything like that before. I'd always gone off well away from people. But in this case, I thought it'd be nice to do something I've never done before. And I was trying to get up there before to connect up with them. And so I was, I put myself under a bit of pressure. But and then I saw this big low coming in and I thought, that would be good. I'll go out there and um, pick it up and it'll give us a, a quick trip up to um, Tonga. That, you know, a following, following wind like that is what a multi-hull is very good at. And in it, I crew wouldn't, wouldn't help me steer, so I put a um, one of those small drogue things out, fish things, to try and slow us down. So uh, the boat was slowed down between 8 and 11 knots, which, you know, it was comfortable and easy to, to look after, but they still, they still wouldn't even come outside the cabin to even help me steer. So and you didn't end. have any self-steering gear? You didn't have a wind I, vane? or I, I, I did, but this was middle of winter. Yeah. And and that's the reason why I had the crew, because uh, there wasn't enough um, sun on the solar panels to be able to do that. And, and oh, I so see. You had an electric water. autopilot, and you didn't have enough generating capacity to run the electric autopilot 24 hours? No. No, okay. it was just... Um, and also, it was a brand new autopilot, and I, I, I never really used it before either. So I hadn't played around with it. But that's the reason why I had the crews to help me sail it up to Tonga. So you didn't, you didn't have any, you, you had not tested the autopilot when you sailed the Tasman Sea. No, no I just connected it all up and, and then left. Oh, but didn't you sail with it in the Tasman Sea from Australia no. to no? No, you just no, got I, it in New Zealand. Okay. Um, and when I was in New Zealand, I bought um, roller furling, and I bought a new Yamaha outboard. I bought a lot of things when I was in New Zealand. Went to work there and earned some money to get all these little things. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, it makes it very tough if you don't have anyone else to steer. <laughs> yeah. So the decision to the decision to heave to or to to set out the sea anchor it was in part just it 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 was because you couldn't get anybody else to helm and you were too tired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, 
I used to think that if you can steer a car, you can steer a boat. Because I had a beautiful, you know, big destroyer wheel, and it, it was it was very comfortable. It had everything on it, you know, you could possibly wish for. It even had color radar and the whole works, big 32 winches. It was ideal, very easy to do. But my crew, they they were in panic mode, and um, because Phil had got them into such a state, and and Rick, he had a fear of, about the about the ocean, about the sea from what his um, wife said, and um, they just wouldn't even venture out on deck. Yeah, and, and Rick and Jim were good friends, them. so they kind of stuck together on their decision-making, maybe. Yeah, 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 they they got together. The the, um, the fear was contagious, and they, they fed on it, yeah. Did you guys, uh, you guys had life jackets and tethers and that type of thing? Were you tethered in when you were steering? Okay, no. so no, being was washed bad. over was a real risk. Um, it wasn't that bad. Okay, uh, not to me. The, so know, the, you you never you was, never you never had a boat with tethers. You didn't use tethers. And um, I used to have uh, you know if you're going up up forward in a storm something like that, just yeah, just got clip on and then just keep on tipping on, and also had a. Um, a forward cockpit, so you could stand. You could stand on that when you were working on the headsails and things. Okay, so you did have a tether. You just weren't using it at the time. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. if they wanted to be tethered in, they could have been. They well, were willing they to help. They wouldn't even come outside the cockpit. They were scared. Okay. Yeah. But maybe you didn't. You never asked. You never said, "Well, maybe we could tether you in." That probably didn't get that far. No. No, I, I couldn't even get them to come out. Right. Okay. So you were kind of just stranded at the helm, really. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. I I really had no option but to. Um, and I'd only just bought a, a new parachute sea anchor, and um, I used a, a trip line on it, and and that would have been okay, except um, the trip line fouled up the parachute, and um, and it collapsed it. Had I not use a trip line, it might have been okay, but even then, in a, a vertical wall of water, it, it, I don't think there would have been any any chance of it anyway. That that wave had my name on it. Yeah, that you had a there's there's a lot of gear associated with a, a a sea anchor, right? I mean, it's not just this the anchor itself, but there's you have to have a lot of road to let out. Yeah, yeah. Well, it has to be out the right distance, so it's uh, picking up the at, the at the right time. Yeah, it was out a long it was out a long way, um, but it was a parachute sea anchor. You know, it, it as soon as it, uh, it went out, it held us really well. Okay, and so it collapsed. It so you, how much road do you think you had out? I don't know. It was probably a couple hundred feet or something like that. I guess might have been more. Okay, so it's a lot. It's a lot to haul in. I guess if yeah. it's tripped, it's possible that, that, to do. That, that's why you have a trip line on it, so you yeah. can pull it in after the storm. Yeah. Pull it in. You pull it inside out. But it, it would have been a lot better without that, and just wait until the. Because whenever you have a storm, you always have a you know a calm afterwards. Then you can then you can do those sort of things. And I also I had a um, electric 
windlass up there I could use that to pull her up anyway. So I guess but I was sort of Oh, so was it was it rowed from your anchor rowed from your primary anchor? Or is that what you use? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so I guess Rick was willing to to help you deploy it and and also to retrieve it, but he wasn't willing to to helm. Do you think you guys would have done better had you been sailing? Yeah, if I if I had um, my friends as crew, or if I had a if I had a, a different crew, it would have been fine. So you think? But then I wouldn't have had that experience either, would I? No, but I I, 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 I bet a, you would trade that, a, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I had an experience that that people even with millions of dollars couldn't have. True, that's true. It's a once in a lifetime experience. It's just uh, yep. so. I guess that's yep. the good. I guess that's a good way to think about it, right? Well, I have I have an experience that um, no one can take away from me. Right. Now, yeah. You think you know, kind of a key problem, and maybe that came out with your consulting to the to the the makers of the movie, helping them out with the story, was that. You thought that the the correct storm tactic was to run with the storm with somebody at the helm. Well, I gave them all the information, and I I gave them a a lot more. I even started to to write a new book on what I hadn't said in the first book, mm-hmm. and that was everything was in there too. So they had all the information to make a really good uplifting movie, uh, and unfortunately, the I tend to think that the the screenwriter, being a woman, she had read Jim's book, and it was—I think it was basically all around about her book, about Jim's book, which is a different because you know um, she probably related more to him, so it was all smarted that way. I, but I can only guess. But it certainly there was very little in that whole movie that. Um, that was really based on my book. In fact, you know, when we came into um, Great Barrier Island, we hit a reef offshore, and we spent several hours on that reef. And um, towards the end of the day, I said, we're, we're going to have to swim for it across the land, you know, before before nightfall. And uh, so we got all our gear together, threw it overboard, and then I jumped, jumped off the bow into the water, and I was only in the water no more than about a minute when a huge wave came along and it just picked up the boat off the um, reef and the boat started coming towards me. I thought, oh no, after four months out at sea, now this boat's going gonna to run over me and, I'm, and it's going to smash me into the, um, into the rocks. But as the boat got lifted up, the wave came underneath the boat and took me and, and threw me into the water. And then I spent about half an hour in the water um, with all my woolen clothes on, trying to make it round to the stern of the boat so they could pull me up onto the boat. And then we drifted ashore. And then as soon as the boat hit the shore, we just stepped off it. And then um, then we went round to another point, and then we had to swim from there across to a small beach. And then we walked up a cliff spent the night 
It was already a wreck in your mind. It was not something that you yeah. considered yep. that you were going to cruise yeah. with. In fact, I went out there um, sometime and they took us out in the helicopter and they, they died on it. And there was, just, there was just a whole lot of small little pieces. There was nothing left in the boat at all. Because we had a, had a storm come through and it just smashed it, you know, smashed it another end. You didn't. You didn't make any effort to get it salvaged or towed to shore or anything like that. No. No. Yeah. No. Um, it was uh, a, a new life. Well, I, I really appreciate you talking to me. Uh, is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you? No, no I, I think that's pretty much it. I think we uh, we had a good time. I think you're a very brave man, and you've really shown kind of what the uh, humans are capable of. You definitely have a record for, you know, a sailing yacht, the crew of a sailing yacht, to be adrift. You know, I don't think there's anybody that comes close to you that, on that. And I, I, I kind of think it's not going to happen again, or it's unlikely to happen again, just yeah, no, because of technology. Yeah. So many people have yeah, sat yeah. phones now, and... Um, they have uh, EPIRBs, which are much better. I think, you know, one of the things, if you've kind of read the Callahan's book uh, yeah. about his own uh, trial in a raft, you just watched the movie Abandoned uh, about uh, the Rose Noel and your, your ordeal or uh, your trial, that the EPIRBs were very different in the, the late 19. 80s than they are today that they they depended on uh, a ship coming by or a, a, an airplane coming by close by versus to today I, I think you just flip the thing on and it's going to hit a satellite and it doesn't really matter where you are in the world or whether there's a ship near you or an airplane near you or not that's, that's 
that's true. But the, the, the same thing still applies, which is very difficult to try to get through to anybody nowadays. And that is, if you go to sea and get yourself into trouble, get yourself out. Don't rely on other people. And you'll notice that nowadays, you're not allowed to have adventure. In fact, my book, uh, it had, at least here in the States, it had autobiography on the end cover because you don't have an adventure section in, in, the, in the libraries or the bookshops. Check it out. The only way you're allowed to have adventure is to watch it on TV. Um, well, you know, they don't have any bookshelves anymore. I'm just, as as an author, I know you could categorize your book as adventure. It's 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 it's, a, it's in a, it's a category in Amazon. So <laughs> so now that the bookstores and the bookshelves have gone away and there's almost only Amazon, uh, you could yeah, but, categorize yourself yeah. as adventure yeah, if you yeah. wanted to. Yeah. You, you go into a bookstore bookstore and see if you can find an adventure section. <laughs> yeah, that's true. If you can find a bookstore, you will not find an adventure section, I agree. No, there's no adventure. In fact... Um, the sailing books are back, under sports. Yeah, it goes back even further than that. Your mother will be teaching you nowadays. Look, if you go out there, take your cell phone. Wear your, wear your gloves, your helmet, and your, and your goggles and the whole thing. Um, you know, you're not allowed to do anything. Um, remember what it was like when we were growing up? You know, you went out and you did all that sort of thing. You'd probably come back after, after dark and doing all that. But you can't do those sort of things now. You've got to take a cell phone with you. So um, when people get into trouble out at sea now, they get on the on the radio and get help, you know. But that's the wrong attitude to have. If you go out to sea and get yourself into, into trouble, get yourself out. And that's the attitude you must have, always. Uh, I, I guess there's a, a, another thing that, that reminds me of is the, the, the radio calls that Phil made that, you know, I think the other crew members may have criticized you that they thought that you should at least radioed your position, but yeah. that may well, not have been possible where you were because you were so far yeah, well, out of radio range. Yeah, that never, never been to see before. And then... Uh, as far as I, I was concerned, it, it, I wasn't in any, in any danger whatsoever. I'd okay, be, so you think... Okay, so you think that in the situation, you know, putting out a, a pon-pon or maybe a security or something like that on the VHF, it was uncalled for? That of was course. a bad idea? Yeah, yeah. Maybe nowadays, you know, People panic and they do all sorts of things. They're not famous, but um, uh, it, it it wasn't a bad storm at all. Okay, it's just an, it was just a normal storm. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that that was the, the and I, I think that that's something kind of I emphasized in my one of my books uh, that uh, how stormy the seas are between Fiji and uh, New Zealand. And so I'd read a lot of cruisers' accounts of making that trip. And their accounts are just filled with, oh, this is the worst passage we ever had. This is awful. This is, you know, because it is very, it is a very stormy sea. The chance of getting a gale there is very high. And yeah. I think most cruisers have not sailed through a gale for any length of yeah, time. The, the, the Tasman's 
appears far worse between Australia and New Zealand. That's True. That's very, very dangerous. Um, True, yeah. It gets really bad there. In fact, I went down to um, Houston a couple of years ago to help in the, um, uh, the search for the Nina, which was a, um, one of the classic uh, New York Yacht Club uh, schooners, which had got lost on a trip from uh, New Zealand to, uh, to Australia. And it, and it went down there. And that boat shouldn't, should never have been down there at, at all, you know. It was a uh, private in New York Yacht Club. Beautiful old boat, but it was tired. And, uh, and if it had been a New, New Zealand boat, it would not have been allowed to leave. For a New Zealand boat to leave New Zealand, it has to go through a marine inspection. But, um, you know, if it's... Uh, what kind of boat was the Nina? It, it, how big was it? What was it made of? It's, um, I think it's 58-foot or more uh, schooner. Was it wooden or metal? or? Yeah, it was wooden built in about 19, 1930, but it was beautiful boat. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even in 1960, it, it would have been tired. Right. It should never have been down there. It was, it was too valuable to have even gone anywhere, really. Well, you know, the, the other thing about wooden boats is that if the maintenance is not up, then the chances of them leaking are a lot higher than a, a fiberglass boat. Right? Yeah. Well, I, I had a 60-foot um, olden scanner called the Suez offered to me to... Um, to deliver from Hawaii back to uh, San Diego, and I said, "Okay, I'll uh, I'll take it take it out and I'll check it out, see what it's like." So we took all the um, cabin soles up and um, took it out. And the moment we hit the wind going down Diamond Head, you could see green through all the seams. Oh my goodness! It just opened up. Yeah. yeah. We just we just turned around and took it straight back and put it on the slip. But it was a beautiful old boat. God, it was beautiful. But that was in that was in 1969, and it was tired then, you know. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it, if you have a wooden boat, you must you must caulk it <laughs> and take yeah, care of it and make sure that yeah. the wood the wood's not rotting and all that other stuff. And that's going to cost yeah. money, which yeah. a lot of owners of wooden yeah. boats don't have. It had been sitting in the water for a long time, so you know it was it was it was fine until you took it out and and um, gave it a, the first wave. It just opened up. Right. You know, yeah. it, it would have had to been um, completely uh, re-ripped. And interesting because over in Hawaii, instead of being caulked with caulking and, and putty, they use um, cement. And I thought, whoa, that's unusual. But that's what they do over there. And I'm a I'm a boat builder by trade, so. Oh, and what is what is the preferred way to? I I would think you'd caulk a wooden boat, but I guess yeah, maybe you, if you wanted yeah, to you use, do less yeah, maintenance, you'd you put some, cement. <laughs> yeah, you 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 use caulking and then um, and putty, but they 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 use cement. Okay, so that's probably yeah. not good maintenance. Well, not from where I'm coming from, but it, it seems to work over there for them all, okay? Okay. Yeah. But it was a beautiful boat. Um, I took it out one day, and um, I, I had big trouble trying to get out. 
uh, because it went the wrong wrong way and I had to go all the way up to the end of the the, the slips and turn around and come out and go out sailing. And of course, as soon as I got back, I went along to friends I know. I said, okay, what did I do wrong? And they said, well, that boat has got the propeller running out one side because when it was built, you know, they didn't have motors in it. So the propeller is running out one side of the, well, one side of the hull. So it'll, it'll only turn around one way when you're going, going in reverse. So they said, what you have to do is you, you get it moving so you've got enough water running across the rudder. And as soon as you get it moving, then you, well, if you're going in and forward, as soon as you get it moving and you start to turn, then you put it in, in reverse and it'll still keep turning while you're, while you're slowly putting it in, in, in reverse. So, um, and of course, then you, you also realise which, which side of the, um, the keel that the you know, propeller's coming out on. So that's that's how I first learned about um, manoeuvring those old boats around. But basically, that's pretty much how you um, manoeuvre you know, the big boats around now anyway. You get it, you get it moving, and then as soon as you get it turning, then you put it in the reverse and, and it, it'll still keep turning. So I'm, I'm learning about those sort of things. Okay, so you're saying okay. using the reverse uh, accelerates the turn or makes the turn work better? Well, as soon as you, you, as soon as you get it moving with the water over the rudder, then you, um, then you, you turn the turn the wheel, and as soon as, when the boat starts turning, it's going to keep turning. And then you put it in reverse, not not hard in reverse, but put it in reverse so you, you, you're not um, going in, uh, you're slowing it down. But the boat's still going to keep turning because it started turning, because they've got enough weight on them. And even without enough weight, they're still going to keep turning. And you're just putting it in reverse to stop it from making um, more headway. Well, it'll still go ahead, but not quite so fast. I've been um, I've been taking out a, uh, a Hunter 49, teaching the um, the owner how to sail and how to manoeuvre because he's never had a yacht before. So, and that's been lots of fun for me because she's semi high wooded, and it has a a, um, a bow propeller on it too, bow thruster. So I've never been I've never um, had to use one of those before, and that is was um, lots of fun, except that we were using it too much, coming in and out of the slip time and time again, uh, so you get, get more um, experience with it until the, uh, the bow tries to stop because it got overheated. But they they are fun. And of course it's got electronics in all directions, and um, that's a bit frightening. But, you know, all the new boats are a whole new, um, whole new ball game. Thank you for talking to me. I enjoyed speaking to you. I think you're a living legend, and uh, I'm glad that you've, uh, you're, you're sailing still. Uh, it's an inspirational story, and I think anybody that's interested in kind of the survival literature, it's just, uh, we'll learn a lot from the, the story. Yeah, it's, it's just a shame that the, um, the movie abandoned couldn't have been done proper. Um, 
because it's a, it could have been so uplifting and showing you what is possible and um, creating miracles and all that sort of stuff. And especially how Phil, uh, he was a liability in terms of changed his attitude. And all those little things, you know. And one of the other things we had is we had fish fever. Um, we were starting to catch uh, a lot of fish. And if you'd asked any one of us, what? if you wanted to wish for any meal now, what would you, what would your wish be? Any meal at all? And we, we, all of us, we would have said more fish. Not hamburgers or pizza or anything like that. We would have, all of us would have said more fish because we had fish fever. Um, and it's very similar to gold fever. And when you have gold fever, all you want is more gold watch those films. But that's what happened, happens when we, we had fish here. So there's lots of little, you know, it could be made into such a, an exciting movie. Because a movie is something that when you watch it, you should come out of the theatre with a big boom on your chest. Wow! You know? God! You know? Not, not something that it's, um, oh God, or something like that. You know, I, I just thought of one other thing that uh, kind of came out of the, the movie, but also in other portrayals, is the, the, the conflict you guys had about the, was it the, the gas, the, the pr propane, I guess. I don't know if you use propane yeah. or butane, but... Yeah, it was, it, it was propane. Yeah. Propane, and, so... And, and um, uh, to my crew, they thought that was... One thing it was, it was a cold environment. So, I mean, you could have maybe got it sooner. Why didn't you get it sooner? Because I, because the same reason. Because I wasn't going to to um, to test those gas bottles out um, after the after those gas bottles and they, had been underwater for over two months. And they they were steel. They were not. Aluminum. So a lot of cruisers. I have aluminum bottles, for example, at least yeah. for the the big bottles for the boat. They were steel that you had. To me, it was too big a risk. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then, you uh, I mean, there was also nothing stopping the other crew members from diving down and getting the gas bottles. They knew where oh, they yes, were, they, right? Yes. Yes, they was. They wouldn't even get in the water, and they were incapable of even putting their head on the water. So. It was it was more they had to convince you to do it, or they they were unwilling to do it themselves, and so yeah, not only unwilling, but they they, they just couldn't, they wouldn't even get in the water until the only time they got in was when Phil became the one, and we could get him in the water. Up until that, he wouldn't even get in the water, and none of the other guys were would either. Yeah, I had to do all that, which was quite a quite a sacrifice. Yeah, you did for the team. Right. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I'd, I'd spend a lot of my time free diving, and, and they'd never done anything like that before. 
people and they like, so they really had no idea. But you didn't do free diving in cold water, you did in warm water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, I was, it was just, I, I was free diving, going underwater to go into the lockers, which were way down, way down low. Right, and so you did have to hold your breath really well. So maybe they oh, didn't. Yeah. They didn't. Maybe yeah. they didn't even have the uh, uh, the ability to do that. You were the only one that had no. the ability to do that. Yeah, no, they had they had no experience behind them to do that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that uh, you know, I just uh, it was great to hear your story and uh, have you talk about it, and uh, you know, you're just a very brave man well, I, and very you yeah, know. Yeah, I, I hope it. Inspiring story. That, yeah, I have it as something that people can remember. So if something happens for them one day, even if it's on land or in a, in a cave up in a mountain or in a snow cave or anything like that, they can think, oh, that's right, I remember hearing that story about what to do now. And that, that would be my, my greatest wish, that, um, that uh, just to, so that one day... Um, what what to do if you get into real into trouble, and to be able to remember to to go into a, a state of deprivation and overlay a new dream. Yeah, remember the uh, the story of Jonah and the whale. Yes. He, Jonah, Jonah went in the whale. He was there for three days, and when he came out, he was enlightened. Right. <laughs> the the original no one will touch it touch that with a, you know, 60-foot pole. But the real the real um, story there was that story came out from um, the Madagascar, I think it was. And there was, uh, there was a, uh, initiates there. And, and the initiate school, uh, they had a deprivation tank. And they, that deprivation tank they called the fish. And they would go into that deprivation tank, which they call the fish. That was their um, nickname for it. And of course, when Jonah went into it, he went in there for three days. And when he came out, he was enlightened. If he had been in a, in a whale, he would have had to be hospitalized. But when they translated the book, they thought, oh, it couldn't have been a fish because, you know, Jonah couldn't have been, you know, there's not a phlegm in a, in a, in a fish. So they, they um, translated fish into whale. So that's where that story came from. But that was a deprivation tank you've been in. Yeah. So it just shows you what is possible. In a state of deprivation. You know, and it's a lot of the way through the, the, um, the Bible too. Even Samson, he did the same thing. Not Samson, was it? Yeah. Samson got no, his hair cut. Jesus did um, the 40 days and 40 nights. Yeah, yeah. It's the same thing. In a state of deprivation. I don't know the Solomon yeah. story. And when you're in that state, you overlay that new dream. Yeah. My husband took 40 years. He, he was just a, a slow learner. <laughs> but but that, that 40 keeps on coming up. You know, we, we went 40 days with no water, then 40 days with very little food, and then the end of the next 40 days we were out of it. And there's something interesting about Three times, I think, like, I don't know what it is, but it's like 999 or 666, you know.
don't feel interesting enough. 120 days. And we thought we'd done 120 days. We just got somewhere along the line, we got um, the days muddled up. But we'd counted 100, uh, 120 days on, on our counting. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Have fun sailing. Well, I've been having a, a good time with the boat. Been meeting all sorts of people. I was uh, I was down on my boat last year, on the dock, and I was starting to talk to this lady who just come in on on this um, Catalina 25. And after a couple of sh- seconds, she said to me, "Oh, John, how nice to see you." And I thought. Who the hell's this? You know, she obviously knows me well. Must be someone I'm ever the yacht club. And she turned to her mechanic to ask to say something, and I thought, oh, God, I know who it is. Carol had sailed with us from San Francisco down to Los Angeles in 1969. <laughs> before those things were created between yeah. when you lost Rose Noel and sponsor mantis marine why don't you tell me about how you came up with the swivel so people they like to use them and we would notice and explain to them a lot of the weaknesses that exist that you know with the swivels that were on the market and kind of make sure that they understood those cautions and saying yeah swivels have a function but you're weighing that you know what you're gaining versus the risks that you're taking on the other hand so you have to consider every situation on whether you really want to be utilizing the swivel or not. And I think that we just saw kind of like there's a need in the marketplace for something that was a better design and something more reliable. We use the innovative heavy-duty Mantis swivel on our boat. Okay, thanks for listening to episode 47 of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. I'm Linus Wilson. Have some fun on the water. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.